Over the course of this year, I've been following a Bible reading program. I've got it printed out in my Bible. I think I promoted this particular Bible reading program where you just read Monday to Friday uh, at the beginning of the year, and I've kept up with it uh, so far. I did get a bit ahead early on in the year, which has been helpful because there have been times when I've slipped back behind. But by reading on weekends and uh, sometimes just reading a longer section because you want to know what happens next, it's kept me up with the plan to read through the whole Bible in one year. And I can say it's been very helpful. Uh, For the most part, it's been very enjoyable. But there's been some points where I've thought, when am I going to get out of this particular book of the Bible? Uh, There's been Leviticus, there's been Numbers, and I'm working my way now through Chronicles. Uh, Chronicles chapter 1, chapter 2, all the way through 1 Chronicles, and then 2 Chronicles, and there are lists and lists and lists of names. And uh, I don't know whether you've kind of tried to work your way through the Bible and, and got to the point of the book of Numbers or something like that, and you just think, do I really have to read every word? Um, if you've got a Bible with headings, surely it's enough to say that this guy had lots and lots of descendants. Move on to the next guy. Well, it does raise the question for us, what is the Old Testament for? Uh, we are people now who are people of the New Testament. That is, we're people of the New Covenant. Uh, we put our trust in Jesus. Why go back and read the Old Testament? What is it for? Is it really helpful? And if we only had a short amount of time, would we bother with the Old Testament at all? Because there's so much to learn about Jesus. And uh, if you've asked those questions, I have a sympathy for you. Uh, I know that it can be very hard at times. And sometimes it seems so foreign. The the culture that we're reading about, the practices, uh, the rituals that they're involved in are just so different to what we're experiencing here and now. Well, last year we looked at the beginning of Matthew, and uh, I think it might have even been the start of this year where we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus said that he hadn't come to get rid of any part of the Old Testament. In other words, Jesus himself is saying it all stands, it's all important, but it finds its fulfillment in me. And uh, you might remember we talked about it being a little bit like a jigsaw puzzle, where if you bought it from an op shop, it's got a couple of pieces missing. There's nothing more frustrating, is there, than working for days and days in rainy weather to complete a 1,500-piece jigsaw and know that there's three pieces that weren't in the box. Uh, Sometimes, uh, I I know that in some families, there are people who deliberately hide one or two pieces because they get great satisfaction in having other people tormented and then being able to put the last piece in. But Jesus is the piece that makes sense of the whole puzzle. He's the fulfillment, he's the climax of the Old Testament. And I suggest to you that if you really want to know Jesus well, yes, you read the Gospels and you read what Paul and John and others say about him in the New Testament, but you need to go back and see what's come before. And as you go back and see what's come before, then when you look at Jesus, you see him in a fresh light you come to understand him even more clearly. Now, that's a bit of an introduction, really, to two things. First of all, a book review. Uh, I want to encourage those of you who are wondering how the whole Bible fits together uh, to take a look at this book, God's Big Picture, a Bible overview by Vaughan Roberts. Um, Put up your hand if you've actually read this book. Uh, And um, put your hand down if you don't think it was worth reading. Okay, 
That was a double negative, and so I totally confused some of you, and you're just feeling guilty because you put your hand down or you put it back up again. I'm sorry about that. But I know, Hilton, what would you give this out of 10? Oh, nine out of ten. Okay, that's because the cover it could be improved. All right, it's it's a good book. It's really helpful. And I searched my bookshelf and found I have three copies. So if you want any of these, come and see me afterwards, Ben. If you could uh, grab those. A selection of covers. Uh, with a with two different covers there. Yes. So Hilton, if you want to change yours, you might get a ten out of ten if you get the different cover. All right. Well, the other reason I'm talking about the connection between the two testaments is because this part of the Bible that we're looking at today stands as absolutely foundational to the New Testament. If you want to find a piece of the Old Testament that really could be described in a way as the fifth gospel, this would be it. This is for the people of Israel, the gospel. And as we come to Jesus through Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, we're going to see Jesus in the light of what has gone before. So what I want to do with you today is to look at this and we're going to move fairly quickly through a number of things. Uh, as we've been doing with the book of Exodus, uh, we're not going to read every part of the section. And so I encourage you to read that through uh, on your own, uh, either in advance or afterwards. But we're really covering chapters 12 to 15 tonight and we're going to base most of it uh, in chapter 12. Now last time we looked at this a fortnight ago we looked at it as a bit like a heavyweight battle. There was a fight on between Moses and Pharaoh which is ultimately a fight between Egyptian gods which aren't really gods and the one true God and we got through nine rounds of that fight. And so what we've arrived at now is the tenth round. This is the knockout round. And if they'd been mucking around up until this point, now it gets deadly serious. This is a, a complete battle and the loser will lose badly. Let's have a look at what we see. At the beginning of chapter 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. There is, there is to be a new beginning. What God is doing now with his people Israel is he's going to reset the calendar. This is going to be now the first month, the month of Nisan. And they will begin on this month and God will do an entirely new thing that they will calibrate from, from this point onwards. The new thing, it will be a new beginning for his people. He's going to revisit the promises that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and now through Moses start afresh. When you look at this chapter, you see, secondly, that it's full of details. And if there's been quite a bit of activity up to this point, it's kind of like somebody has put things on slow motion. Because now we've got all sorts of intricate details, not only about what's going on in this battle between Pharaoh and Moses, but what the Israelite people are to do. And you might have noticed, as it was read for us, chapter 12, that there's an enormous amount of detail about bread. What type of bread, what you're to do with the bread, when you're to eat the bread, how you're to dress when you're eating the bread, and what time you are to get ready to eat the bread, and whether you're to take the bread with you, and so on. Now, what's all this deal about the bread? And there's other things as well, aren't there? There's the animal that's to be sacrificed, which is to be a lamb that's a year old. 
that is not to be uh, defective in any way. And if you don't have a lamb, it can be a goat. And that is not as strange uh, in the Middle East as it is to us. We, we know what goats look like, we know what sheep look like, and they don't look much like each other. But uh, if you want to, Google sheep and goats in the Middle East, and you'll see that it's very hard to tell them apart. So here we've got the provision for something significant to take place with a lot of detail. And the detail will matter. We're going to see things that come from the detail as we move on. The third thing to notice is at the heart of all of these instructions in chapter 12 is the focus on the blood. So if you come down to verse 13, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive play will touch you when I strike Egypt. There've been nine plagues up till this time. On the 10th plague, it won't be a plague for Israel at all if they keep the instructions, but it will be a plague on the people of Egypt. There is to be blood that is taken from the lamb and it's painted on the top of the doorpost and on the sides of the doorpost. And God's saying that the destroyer will come and he will pass over all of the houses where there's the blood on the doorposts. But the houses where there is no blood on the doorpost, the firstborn will be killed in every household in Egypt. This is the instruction, and you see, it's pretty important to get the details right. There's a life and death thing that's going on here. And at the heart of it, and we'll come back to this again and again, at the heart of it is to be the blood of a lamb that is spread on the doorposts. Not only uh, do we focus on the blood here, but we see where the Passover comes from. It's literally the Passover. Or you could swap the words around if you want to. This is literally the overpass. This is the Passover when the angel of death, the destroyer, passes over these households. And if you come with me to verse 21, we read these instructions. Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once, select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. Very important instructions, these ones. You want to be paying attention at this time because if you go outside or if you don't post the blood on the doorposts, then you're in danger of your life. None of you shall go outside the door of your house till morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. This event that becomes known from this point onwards as the Passover is the event where there is both judgment and salvation. Judgment on all those who don't have the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. The firstborn is killed in every household. But for those who put their trust in the blood of the lamb, 
those who take God at his word, those who follow God's instructions and paint the blood above their doorpost, there is not judgment but salvation. And what we see in this account here is judgment and salvation going together. If, if you come down a little bit further to verse 29, uh, we can read these words. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. And Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go worship the Lord as you have requested. You see, there is judgment upon Pharaoh and the people of Egypt so that there might be salvation for Moses and the people of Israel. Judgment and salvation, they're, they're two sides of the one event, the Passover. It is both a judgment and it's salvation. There will be judgment on those who are in opposition to God. Pharaoh who says, who is this God? Pharaoh who taunts God and picks a fight with God. Pharaoh who worships false gods who aren't even gods. He is judged. And we'll see more of that when we read on. But through that judgment, God releases, rescues. In fact, he redeems Israel. Now, the language of redemption features in this section. Not a lot, but it is key language. It's actually very important. It's a summary way of speaking of what God is doing. Um, and we're introduced to it back in Exodus chapter 6. So in Exodus chapter 6 and verse 6, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. See, what God's doing with the Passover is he is redeeming Israel. Um, if you're not familiar with the idea of redeeming or redemption, uh, maybe you've, uh, you, you've seen a cash converters store um, or something like a cash converters. Uh, you take your belongings uh, into the store and they give you some money for them so that you've got money to do with what you want. Uh, but if you want to get back that thing that you took to cash converters, maybe it was a bicycle, a piece of jewellery or a guitar or something, then you need to redeem it. That is, you need to pay, and there's usually a hefty interest on top of that, to redeem, to get that guitar back, to get that jewellery back, to get that bicycle back. You redeem it by paying a price. What God is saying is, I'm going to redeem you, Israel, and it's going to come at a price. The price will be the judgment on the Egyptians through the uh, slaughter of the firstborn, and for you Israelites, it will be at the sacrifice of a lamb whose blood is painted on the doorpost. So it's redemption by the blood of the lamb. You can hear the New Testament categories, can't you, as I speak like this. Redemption through the blood of the lamb. God is going to redeem his people. And you see this idea of redemption a number of times in this passage. Um, I'll just give you a couple of examples. Uh, in chapter 13, he says, Redeem with a lamb 
every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. Or a little later it says, This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. Now I'm not going to go into all the details of what's going on there with, uh, with redeeming a donkey through the blood of a lamb. But the idea of redeeming the firstborn continues for the people of Israel. Uh, in fact, if you go to the book of Numbers, you can see that they could redeem animals by paying five shekels. Uh, and you could redeem people through the payment of uh, an amount of money as well. But the idea of redemption is just what I want us to focus on for now. It's buying out of captivity. Um, now, the language gets used of all that God does from rescuing people out of slavery in Egypt after the Passover right through to them walking to the edge and camping before the Red Sea and then crossing over on dry land to freedom. And there's a song at the end of this section. We're not going to talk too much about going through the waters. Uh, but the song of Moses and the Israelites in chapter 15 and verse 13 says this. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people that you have redeemed. So summary language of what's happened in, in rescuing Israel from Egypt is that they've been redeemed. Um, and, and when you hear the language redeemed, the thing to be asking is redeemed from what? Well, in this case, it's from slavery in Egypt. By what? Well, through the blood of a lamb painted on the doorposts. There's a cost to redemption and there's redemption from something to something else. So the last thing that I want to observe with you uh, in this passage is the big emphasis that there is right through on not forgetting. Uh, there's, there's so much mention in this passage, not just of what they are to do uh, on that particular night of the Passover, but Moses' instructions from God and to the people are, are really focused not just on what happens then, but what they are to continue to do on that month of Nisan from that point onwards. There's to be an annual remembrance. They're to keep following these instructions to keep a Passover celebration. And you can read this again and again. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, in chapter 12, it says in verse 11, this is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. And on the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through to the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day and do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all that you may do. So annually, the people are to have a week when they get rid of all the leaven, um, I actually think it's, it's leaven here, not specifically yeast. If you want to think about the nature of bread making back in that day, I think the most likely scenario is think about sourdough bread now, where you make a starter, and from that starter you take a, a portion of the old that begins the new. 
And I think a key feature of what's going on here for Israel is that they are to leave the old behind. Now, there's other features to it as well. That is, they're to do it in haste. And if you're to do it in haste, um, it makes sense not to have to wait for it to rise. Uh, and that idea gets picked up. But here there are many instructions about this ceremony involving bread. It's to be repeated. And then in verse 17, celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. And celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month you are to eat bread made without leaven from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. There's so much focus here. Down in verse 24, obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance. Verse 20, uh, 25, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of Israel in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. And then the people bowed down and worshipped. So I've just given you an introduction to what's going on here, and I'm just going to quickly recap seven points. First thing is this is a new beginning. God's doing something fresh with Israel. Uh, there are lots of details, but the focus of the detail is on the blood of the lamb that is posted on the doorframe and on the sides so that when the angel of death comes, the destroyer, he passes over all those who are trusting in the blood of the lamb. God brings about their salvation, but he does so at the cost of blood and through judgment upon his enemies. This salvation for God's people is a redemption. He saves them from slavery and he does it at the cost of the blood of the lamb. And the people of Israel are never to forget that. That's what's going on. Don't ever forget this. This needs to be uh, an annual perpetual reminder that God has redeemed you to be his people and go and worship you. This is the gospel for the Israelites. Don't forget. And so the household gathers at this time every year. And the youngest in the family, his job would be to ask the father, why are we doing this as they celebrate this meal? Come with me now to another beginning, a new beginning. Uh, a beginning that is found in the New Testament. And I just want to draw out some of these connections because I think it will just deepen our understanding of Jesus and what he has done. So in John chapter 1, we have in the beginning is the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. In verse 14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then we're introduced to John the Baptist. And then John the Baptist says in verse 29, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he describes him as the Lamb of God. Now, what would a Jew be thinking? Once a year, every year, they're told about the lamb who is the redemption sacrifice. John is preparing us to understand something profound about Jesus. Jesus will go on and speak about the fact that he's come to sacrifice himself. 
He must go to Jerusalem where he'll be handed over and killed. The Son of Man has come to give his life as a ransom or a redemption for many. And we see when we get to each of the Gospels, well, at least in particular, Matthew, Mark and Luke, that prior to Jesus' death, he celebrates a meal with his followers. And we're told in the text that this happens at the time of the Passover. So I'll pick on one of the Gospels from Mark chapter 14, and I'll read to you a little bit of the account. In Mark chapter 14... Uh, from verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread. Now, this is around about 1400 years later, okay? This is a long time afterwards, but it's still happening. It's still going. They're following this, they're keeping this, and strict Jewish families will do so to this day. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So we've got a context here, right? The context, it, it, keep in mind all that Israel would be hearing when they hear these words, when they go through these preparations. Coming down to Jesus then gathered with the 12 and he's eating with them. And in verse 22, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. And then he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, there were a few surprises in what Jesus has just said to his followers. The Passover, up until this point, as you talked about what was going on, you always looked backwards. You always went back to that time when God passed over the houses in Egypt so as to save his people. Now, Jesus says something radically different. Don't look back to the Exodus Look to the one who's in your midst, he's saying. And at a time when you might be reminded that this is how God rescued his people, Jesus says, look to me. This bread is my body. He doesn't make reference to taking the unleavened bread and, and making sure you eat it in haste and reminding the people of what has happened. He points to himself. And likewise, when he drinks from the cup, he says, this is my blood, which is poured out for many. And these words gets picked up in 1 Corinthians. When the people of God are, are celebrating a meal together, and it's atrocious what's going on because some are getting drunk, some are gorging themselves, some are missing out. And the point is they're not celebrating anything like what Jesus establishes here. And so Paul reminds them again of these words of Jesus. But it's interesting, and I leave you this to ponder, in all of the gospel accounts of this Passover-related meal that Jesus is eating with his disciples, in the descriptions about the preparation and in the descriptions of them eating and drinking, there is no specific mention of the roasting of a lamb. Now, 
we're, we're just not told. It's, it's just not there in the text. And I think at the very least, we are to understand that there is a lamb there, and that is Jesus. We see also the Passover in Jesus' mind on the cross itself. And so I'll take you to John chapter 19. And as I do this, hear the descriptions from the Exodus. John chapter 19 and verse 28, later knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it and put the the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. We're told that the branch is a hyssop plant. What else did you do with the hyssop plants? Well, at the time of the Passover, the blood was put on a hyssop plant and it was painted over the doorposts. And then you read on in verse 31. Now it was the day of preparation, that is, of the Passover. And the next day was to be a special Sabbath. And because the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies to be left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Come down a little further. These things happened so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. The instructions in taking that lamb without blemish and slaughtering it is don't break any of the bones even if you need to not eat it all if you can't eat it all don't break the bones and in subsequent descriptions of the passover in the book of numbers we're told again don't break any of the bones here with jesus the point is made he's on the cross i take it as the passover lamb the one who takes away the sin of the world. And of course, when you look through the rest of the New Testament, it is the death of Jesus that is the focus. The death of Jesus that we look to and put our trust in to be redeemed. And the death of Jesus that remains the focus even after his resurrection. And we see that very clearly in the book of Revelation. Let me read to you from one of my favourite chapters in the Bible, Revelation chapter 5. It's a picture here of the lion who is the lamb. In fact, we we are told in verse 5, one of the elders said to me, Don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. Powerful picture. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by all of these creatures. He hears that the lion has triumphed. He looks and he sees a lamb looking like it's been slain. See, the lion is the lamb. The powerful, victorious king is the one who gave his life as a sacrifice for many. And look at the worship that takes place. 
down in verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. So this is a, a, a curtain back. Look at the scene. Here is the heavenly reality, there is the throne of God, there is the one who is worthy to come and take the scroll, which is to do with opening up the very purposes of God. And who is it? It's the lamb who's been slain. And he now is worshipped as well. Now, I want to take you to one more passage. There are more we could look at, but one more in terms of the connection to the Passover. And it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's an interesting passage. Well, it's an interesting part of 1 Corinthians. Here there's somebody who's been involved in an adulterous relationship with their mother-in-law. Um, don't worry too much about all the details, but I want you to see the argument that Paul has for why we need to change, why there needs to be a godly attitude. And uh, in, in, in verse uh, 9 of uh, 1 Corinthians 5. He says, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. See, Paul takes the argument of what happens in the Passover, applies it to Jesus, and, and for the people of the Passover, the Israelites were not to go back to the ways of the Egyptians. They were set free to worship God and live a new life. For those of us who are redeemed by Christ, our Passover lamb, we're not to go back to the old unleavened ways. No, we are to look to the new way, the new way of following Christ. And the language of redemption comes up. So at the end of chapter 6, he says that we are to flee from sexual immorality. And we're told in verse 19, don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, who you've received from God. And then he says this, you are not your own. You were bought at a price, literally redeemed by God. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. So the point that Paul is making in this is leave your past behind. In the same way that the people of Israel were to tuck their tunics into their belt, they were to hold their staff. I think a modern version of that would be Make sure you've got some thongs on or some shoes. Uh, have a backpack, have your passport in it and any other important things and be ready to go at any minute. Paul is saying here, be prepared to live a new life. You've been set free. 
Now, in all of this, I think there's some reminders to us to not forget what God has done for us. And let me take you through this with just four points. The first is, don't forget that the gospel, and I'm going to use some big words here, is about substitutionary atonement. That is, it's one dying in the place of another. It is the lamb that is slain for the firstborn in the household. It is Jesus Christ whose death pays for your sin and my sin. He pays our death, our judgment for us so that we can be set free. It is unpopular in Christian circles around the world to speak of the gospel as substitutionary atonement. There's one theologian who rose to prominence saying that this is divine child abuse. You cannot have the father pouring out his wrath on the son. There's something obscenely uh, wrong about that. But this is God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. This is God, Father, Son and Spirit in unity, bringing us into fellowship with themselves at the cost of the life of Jesus. And if there was any other way, don't you think God would have worked it out? Redeemed. We are redeemed. We are the redeemed people. That is, very simply, you are not your own. And we need to take this seriously, I think, because we live in a world now where we believe and our whole culture says we must believe that we are our own to do with ourselves however we please. I need to be authentic to my inner desires. I need to be true to myself. The word of God, the gospel says to me, you've been brought to belong to God. And that is actually liberation. That's true freedom. So you're not your own to do with as you please. You're God's to do with as he pleases. And that is true liberation. I think another thing that we can pick up from the whole thrust of celebrating this annually and the fact that it continued to be um, instituted for the people of God right through until the time of Jesus is just the value of celebrating often. See, the Jewish people were to keep this Passover so they would never forget their gospel. What are we to do that we might never forget our gospel, the gospel of Jesus? Well, I think in part it is celebrating together with some juice and some bread. It's remembering that Jesus' body and blood was shed for us. But it's bigger than that. It's being reminded that the death of Jesus and his resurrection stands at the centre of who we are and thanking God for that at any and every opportunity. In our homes, we might not have a particular time when the youngest says to dad, why is it that we celebrate Easter? But why not introduce it? Son, daughter, it's not so much about those little chocolate eggs or this little fluffy bunny. There was something that took place back outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And so we speak about the gospel of Jesus. Celebrate often. And friends, remember this, and we're reminded of it, that there is absolutely no way to be saved, no way to be redeemed, other than by the blood of Jesus Christ. As that blood was painted on the doorposts, so there is nothing but the blood of Jesus to make us right with him. 
Now I'm going to invite the musicians to come up and uh, they're going to lead us in singing, guess what? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, which we will do. And I'm also going to invite uh, some people who will help to distribute some juice and some matzah. Uh, did I say it right? Or a bit more phlegm, okay? I can't, I can't. It'll be dangerous. Um, we, we've actually got some authentic kosher uh, from Israel, matzah bread. Uh, to have, I did roll my R, that was pretty good. Um, to remind us, not of the Passover, but of the one true Passover lamb, Jesus. And we've got some grape juice. I'll invite you to um, just take of the bread if you, like me, are gluten, um, what's the word, celiac or gluten intolerant, we have uh, some specially homemade gluten-free matzah. And I'd encourage you just to hop up and to walk to the table at the back there where I will go and get your own gluten-free. The rest of you get it all the way, I think, from Jerusalem.